0: This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extensions Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. I have no evidence of it yet because it's not something that we will know until next year, but it's possible that we'll have a worst year of barley yellow dwarf in our wheat fields next year. This is largely because of our mild fall with a late frost and even later hard freeze. Barley yellow dwarf is a virus that attacks a great number of grasses, including wheat, oats, barley, and a range of forage and grass weeds. It is a problem more serious and frequent here in southeast Kansas than the rest of the state. And the reason why we might see it more next year is because the virus is spread by aphids. Namely, the bird cherry oat aphid and the greenbug aphid. The infected aphids can blow in from southern states, or they could be local infected aphids. According to the Parson Mesonet Station, we didn't have a hard freeze until November the 25th. Plenty of time for aphids to find the green wheat fields. Barleyola Dwarf can't be seen now, but it will start to show up in the spring, usually shortly before jointing. It is most likely seen in patches a few feet across and characterized by yellow, reddish leaf tips and stunted plants. It is easily confused with freeze damage or a nutrient deficiency, so the distribution in a field helps with its diagnosis. Yield losses from Barleyola Dwarf depends on the time of the infection. Infection in the fall can cause losses up to 35% in the infected plants. After heading, infection has little effect. How bad barley yellow dwarf will be an issue in the spring is largely dependent on the aphid population the previous fall. Currently, there is nothing we can do about the barley yellow dwarf. The plants are infected or not. The first method of control is planting resistant varieties. No variety is completely resistant to barley yellow dwarf, but some do better than others. Everest, our most popular hard wheat variety in this area, and its progeny, Zinda, are fairly resistant to barleyola dwarf. I haven't seen any specific data, but it's my understanding that soft wheat varieties in general are fairly susceptible, increasing our risk in this area as soft wheat acres expand. Pesticide seed treatments can help reduce barleyola dwarf by directly controlling aphids. However, this systemic pesticide only has a couple of weeks' effect after germination. Usually, this is plenty of time before the first hard freeze controls the aphid populations. However, this year we had such a mild fall that likely much of the treatment had weakened before the freeze. Still, these seed treatments were even more important to reduce the aphid populations in early growth stages. All that together, wheat planted later, combined with pesticide seed treatments and resistant genetics, are going to have less incidences of barley dwarf. We see this virus every year in a lot of fields, at least to some degree, but we won't know till spring how severe the virus ended up. But there is some logic to think that a mild fall with a late freeze will result in a higher risk for barley dwarf. If you have any questions about barley dwarf, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your extension crop report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District.
1: Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Winter supplementation often focuses heavily on meeting protein and energy requirements and tends to leave mineral nutrition as an afterthought. Missing the mark in any nutrient category, including vitamins or minerals, can have negative effects. All nutrients interact, so deficiencies in one element can create inadequacies of other nutrients, even if those nutrients are supplied in the correct amount. During winter months, locally grown forages are typically the basis of cattle diets. The mineral content in the forage is based on the mineral content of the soils they're grown on, Forage can be highly variable because of the soil formation process from one region to another. Mineral composition can even change from one pasture to the next. To complicate the matter further, the mineral content and availability are not the same thing. The digestibility of the forage impacts the availability of the mineral. High quality grasses that have high digestibility will have, not surprisingly, greater mineral availability. Due to the annual change in weather conditions, mineral supplement strategy should be reviewed annually. Evaluate the mineral availability in forage, protein supplements, and water. Compare this amount to the requirement of your livestock to formulate an effective plan. The plan should fill any gaps of deficiencies to make sure all interactions can happen as needed. Interactions among minerals could be antagonistic, binding with each other and reducing animal availability. Sometimes, an excess of one element has to be fed to overcome this binding. Secondly, excess minerals can cause toxicity. It's critical that needless supplementation is avoided to keep down costs and toxicity concerns. Feed and water testing are needed to fine-tune a formulation. While this involves upfront effort and expense to sample and measure mineral content, it has the potential advantages of improved animal performance, reduced costs by overfeeding mineral, prevention of unfavorable interactions, and prevention of toxicity. Referring to forage mineral content, typically calcium levels are adequate and phosphorus levels tend to be deficient, especially in mature forages. So, phosphorus supplementation is usually necessary. Some basic guidelines for winter mineral supplementation programs are Always provide trace mineralized salt at a minimum. Supplement phosphorus when forage is dormant, unless distiller's grain is being used as a protein source. Supplement copper if symptoms are present, but be sure to monitor copper status to ensure deficiency is solved without reaching toxic levels. Because commercial mineral and salt products are formulated to meet generalized conditions, it's helpful to create a custom blended formula to meet local deficiencies or toxicities of a specific ranch. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337.
0: Thanks Wendy. And now, here's Davin Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report.
2: This is Davin Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. A predator is any creature which gets some portion of its food by killing another animal. However, the concept means very different things to different people. Examples of predation include such everyday events as a swallow catching flies, a bass eating minnows, or a quail catching grasshoppers. A common predator in Kansas is the coyote. Coyotes have erect pointed ears, a slender muzzle, and a bushy tail. Most coyotes are brownish gray in color, with a light gray to cream colored belly. However, color can vary from nearly black to nearly white. Most coyotes have dark or black hairs over their back and tail some people describe coyotes as looking like a collie dog or a small german shepherd male coyotes weigh between 25 to 45 pounds and female coyotes weigh 22 to 35 pounds on average coyotes can live just about anywhere they are found in deserts swamps tundra grasslands brush and dense forests from below sea level to high mountains They have also learned to live in suburbs and cities like Los Angeles, New York, Phoenix, and Denver. Coyotes are omnivores. This means they eat both meat and plants. They eat rabbits, roadkill, rodents, deer, usually fawns, insects such as grasshopper, livestock, and poultry. Coyotes will even eat fruit, including berries and watermelon, on occasion. And unfortunately, they will also eat cats and small dogs. Coyotes are most active at night and during early morning hours. Coyotes sleep in sheltered areas but do not generally use dens, except when rearing their young. Coyotes have good eyesight, hearing, and a keen sense of smell. Coyotes usually breed in February and March and have their pups in April and May. Average litter size is 5 to 7 pups. Both male and female coyotes hunt and bring food to their pups. Other adults associated with the denning pair may help with hunting and caring for the pups. Pups are usually weaned by six weeks of age, but will remain with their parents until late summer or fall. Many methods are used to prevent damage caused by coyotes. Some methods are lethal and result in the death of the coyote. Some methods are non-lethal, which do not result in the death of the coyote. Often, many methods are used. This is called integrated pest management. The purpose of integrated pest management is to stop or reduce rather than eliminate the coyotes. This has been Adavin Strontz with your K-State Research and Extension report.
0: Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report.
3: With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Ferns are one very common houseplant that have some important considerations to ensure that they stay healthy during the cold winter months. Because of cultural changes in how we heat our homes during the winter, most ferns will suffer without environmental modification. The main problem with the winter is that the humidity in houses drops significantly. Ferns will suffer in relative humidity under 50% and almost never grow in locations with humidity under 30% which is common when house heating systems are run. If you have a cooler room with dabbled light, this is the best place to keep a house fern, as it mimics the natural forest floor environment most ferns grow in. To raise the humidity immediately around the plant, it might be necessary to mist it with a spray bottle or use a humidifier in the room. Ferns are the most sensitive house plants to the size of the container they are grown in and will likely need several repottings as they grow. It is important to choose an appropriately sized container for the current size of the fern, and not try to give extra space for a fern to grow into, as this can cause problems with watering and water availability. A good rule of thumb is to have a container with no more than one inch of space between the fern's roots and the edge of the container. Choosing clay or terracotta containers will mean that you will need to water a little more often as the container will absorb some of the moisture. If the container is plastic, this will not happen, and watering should be reduced accordingly. Hold off on repotting until it appears that the container can no longer hold the fern. Repotting early increases the chance that you will choose a container that is too big for the plant. Light is also a complicated topic for house ferns because each fern species is going to have its own unique light requirement. For example, Boston ferns, arguably the most common house fern, need only 2 hours of indirect sun per day and should be shaded for the rest of the day. Most fern species will not be able to take direct sun from a south-facing window, especially during the winter, and so should be placed near east-facing or north-facing windows instead. You will be able to tell if light is too strong if the leaves begin to scorch. Moving the pots away from direct light will still give most ferns the light they need to photosynthesize. Because ferns have such low light requirements, they are ideal plants for a garden or landscape that gets little to no sun. They will not tolerate heavy clay or soil with poor drainage, so a site assessment before planting is necessary. Ferns are ideal plants for the north side of houses where sunlight almost never reaches directly or for raised beds with high aeration. Ferns will likely need to be divided after several years of growth. This works the same as with most other plants that require dividing. Dig up the root ball and halve or quarter it, replanting each new plant and watering them in to ensure lack of transplant shock. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Court Report.
0: Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.